This is Make Yourself at Home, a podcast from BizNow where we speak with people in real estate each week while they're isolating. My name's Miriam Hall. For more than a week, demonstrations have erupted all around the country with people marching in protest to racism and police brutality. It's forced businesses and business leaders to address the issue and promise to do better. Real estate, which is pretty much dominated by white men, is no different. Several executives have spoken out this week about inequality, injustice and ways to make the industry more inclusive. In this episode, we speak with Beatrice Sibleys, who has her own firm, BOS Development, which focuses on Harlem and the Bronx. The company built a condominium development in Harlem, and right now she's working on hotels, an adaptive reuse project in the neighbourhood, and a charter school opportunity zone fund targeting the Bronx and Harlem. Ten years ago, she helped form an organisation called Harlem Park to Park, a social enterprise that works to advance cultural preservation and economic development of small businesses within central Harlem. She's speaking here about being a woman of colour in real estate, talking to her daughter about the death of George Floyd, and what she's telling people who say, what can I do? I think it's a challenging time. I think it is a sad time, Um, but it's probably also the most optimistic that I have ever been about the future of America. Um, Because I think that we're kind of, as a generation, like rethinking what America is. And I think what happens when you're in quarantine is that you pause and you stop and you think about what's important. And 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 strangely enough, I don't think what has happened with George Floyd would have had the same impact on America at any point in time, other than the fact that the country and the world is in quarantine. And we're all having to sit still and take a look at that video and say, with our kids around us, our grandparents around us, is this who we are? What was your conversation like with your nine-year-old? So my daughter and I have an interesting relationship in that she knows that I am a news junkie. And so, you know, I remember the morning when Charlottesville happened. It was a Saturday morning, I believe. And I was watching the news and literally watching this slow moving car wreck going, this is not going to end well. And I remember having the question in my head, should I, she was, this was a year or two ago, she was seven, eight, should I turn the TV on or should I turn the TV off? And I just left it on. And that was Saturday morning and she saw the whole thing unfold the same way that I saw it unfold. And, you know, my, you know, she's seven, so she's in, uh, my, her, her father is African, I'm, I'm a Jamaican immigrant to the U.S. As immigrants from those countries, we grew up with a different system of government where um, in Jamaica, the, we had leaders who were black, white, women, men. Um, you know, in Senegal, it's the same. Well, definitely African. I don't know how much women lead in that country. And, and so I've had a hard time because I did not grow up um, feeling the legacy of slavery as present as is present for African-Americans who 
deal with institutional racism kind of in the milk, in mother's milk. Like it, it is a part of your life from the moment that you were born. Um, and I've struggled on how to not taint her black slate. And so, uh, you know, in, in, in my way, I sit by as a resource. If she asks a question, I answer it. But to some extent, I'm allowing her to observe for herself and, and make her own decisions. You know, this is the internet age, right? We have an age of full information. And I trust that she will look at this with full information and I will be there to answer her questions. But, but for a while, I want those to be her decisions. Has she seen the video? Good question. I have seen a second or two of it, which was as much as I could take. Um, and I hope she hasn't. What sorts of conversations are happening in your circles? You're a developer, you're focused on Harlem, you've got a, um, you're part of an organisation, you founded an organisation that supports local business in the historic Harlem area. What are people saying around you? Are people talking about this moment? So what I find interesting is, and you ask a great question, Miriam, is the people that are talking to me, if I have to think about it, are more my white friends than my black friends. And I didn't think about it till you asked the question. I think when I, so for example, I was on a board call yesterday um, with two African-American organizations um, that I'm involved in, or one is African-American and one is more diverse. One's a women's organization that's more diverse. And it's interesting, we had two board calls and we, actually discussed it fairly little other than a what a fucking week I can't think you know just kind of the like you know cussing and swearing and then starting the meeting right like it is because for the rest of America this is something new for people in the African-American community it's Tuesday right it's right it's another person that was killed. It's another, it's Wednesday. I think what is different is, and fortunately different, is my white friends reaching out to me, who some of them are my professional real estate friends who are not reaching out to me about real estate. They're reaching out to me in shock, in what can I do, in I didn't know, or I just wanted to call. And what are you telling them when they say, what can I do? Um, so there is one, so someone reached out to me and said, what can I do? And I made a point of saying, I'll get back to you. And trust me, I will. Because I, I, I wanted to acknowledge the question and appreciate the question. I don't think, you know, sometimes you're, you know, it's like, it's like you're in a couple and you tell the, your partner, this is what I'm going through. And they're like, can I fix it? No, no, you just, you just want them to hear. Right? And, and so when I get the call, I'm like, I don't need to tell the person what to do. I, I also think that they'll figure out themselves what to do. But I do want to acknowledge that they were heard asking, what can I do? Have you been following some of the comments from the real estate community? 
people saying this has been a problem for a while, this, you know, racial inequity. I, I spoke to Jeff Blau, who's the CEO of Related this week, who said that racial inequality is the biggest problem facing America. What do you think about those sorts of comments when you hear them from someone like the CEO of Related? I pause because, and I think we shared this, I pause because I, I, I would hope that people understand, particularly in the real estate industry, the real estate industry focuses on real property. And the African-American community was the real property on which this country was built. And the real property value of slaves was often far in excess of the real property of the land they worked because they were the means of production. And so, you know, one of my challenges Welcome. My daughter just came from yeah. a paper. So I was, I was, you know, I was saying that the re, you know, we're in a real property industry in real estate, but we have a history where African Americans were the real property founding the American experiment um, from an economic perspective. And, and so as a real estate developer, Everyone assumes that because I'm an African-American real estate developer, I will do, I should be doing affordable housing. And number one, it was difficult for me to break into affordable housing as an African-American woman um, because, you know, those opportunities are by RFP. And I can't tell you how many failed RFPs I submitted because I was submitting as an independent developer and I didn't have a track record in affordable housing. So if you don't have a track record, you can't get a track record. And I chose to start my own company. And when I chose to start my own company, I was actually coming out of Wharton as a vice president at J.P. Morgan. And I interviewed at all the firms like Related and in 2005, 2006. And my Wharton colleagues all got offers and I didn't. And I got interviews. I would go in for interviews. The interview would be scheduled um, at the CFO level. They would then bring in the CEO. They would then bring in the chair. They would invite me back and I would never get an offer. And I don't know if, and as far as I know today, for those major firms that I interviewed at, I don't know if there is, to this day, 10, 15 years later, I don't know if they have any senior African-American staff. I don't know them. So I know that I tried to enter those organizations. And then fortunately I had the intestinal fortitude to build my own company. And then in building my own company, I'm told I can't do affordable housing because I don't have an affordable housing track record. Related is one of the largest affordable housing developers in the country. So I'm competing against Related and I can't compete because I don't have a track record. I can't get a job and I can't compete as in affordable housing. You have to get subsidies from the housing department and you have to win RFPs. You can't just go out and you know develop it on your own, right? You need the organs of government mm-hmm. to designate you. And then the other thing, then after a while, I, I also came t- to realize that the entire affordable housing industry is based on a rental model. And so 
in the time that since I've looked at this industry over 10 years, companies that started with nothing, majority firms largely, have become Goliaths with the affordable housing model where ownership is in the hand of the developer and where at the expiration of the tax credits, you become effectively the owner of the property. So the affordable housing industry, the way that it is structured based on the low-income housing tax credit, which was sponsored by Congressman Charlie Rangel here in Harlan, which has done significant housing production and has created modern housing in neighborhoods like Harlem, has also concentrated that real property opportunity in certain hands of certain communities like Related. They may be the smaller versions of Related, but they are ultimately growing to be the new Related. So I think it's interesting that the industry is beginning to see the lack of diversity but I think we also have to kind of peel the layers of the onion back a little bit and hopefully have the courage to do that and ask why is it that the entire affordable housing industry is based on concentrated real estate ownership in the hands of capitalized developers who have to have a track record to get to designation. People are talking about how, how can we rebuild communities after all of this, not just the past week of, of protests and this moment in America, but everything that's happened over the past few months. What kind of role do you think you would want to play in something like that? Or would you want to play a role in that? So even before uh, COVID and now before George Floyd and his family, I have been, um, in my involvement in the community, sensing a fire alarm flyer. So I, to, to me, it... The, the these events have exposed what to anyone who wanted to look has been obvious for a little while you know we have a i always you know i went to pretty good schools and i was blessed to be able to do that largely on scholarship um and i always feel like i learned one thing in school so i went to yale and I, you know, Yale, forgive me. So I remember the, the thing I would, I say is the one thing I learned at Yale. And, you know, if, you know, is it Schumpeter or something like that? Some, it was uh, an economic theory class. And the premise was that of the book and the, the lecture was that economic change creates political change. Economic transformation creates political transformation. And they went through the agrarian revolution, the industrial revolution. And people, people often think that politics, that politics, and so, you know, people wonder about me because you would look at me and I remember at Yale, I studied economic and political science and everyone was shocked when I left Yale and, and went because I was the head of the, co-head of the Black Student Alliance. I was a big activist. And people were shocked when I left Yale and I went to work on Wall Street. Like, you're not going to work for the World Bank and save the world, is it? But it was that class. That class taught me that economic change creates political change. Political change is the tail of the dog. Where's the money? Follow the money. And that's how I've structured my career, is really thinking about, yes, I want to make change, but change comes from economics. 
African-Americans were real property. Not just African-Americans, I'm from Jamaica, you know, slaves in Jamaica were real property. We just, we just didn't have, you know, we just didn't have the second Jim Crow, right? So our experience of slavery kind of stopped at slavery and the American experience, it almost never stopped. And so back, you know, when you understand that premise and you realize that we are in the biggest economic transformation that we've ever known, the technological and the technological revolution, it makes you concerned about what political change is this economic change going to unleash? And we saw it, right? So we saw it a little bit with Obama in which a candidate outside the establishment was able to use low dollar donations to compete with a more established candidate and a more established system to become president. And then it's, you know, technology is agnostic. It's the same technology that helped Obama became president ultimately was the same technology that helped Trump to become president. And, and so we have to think as a community, you know, when I look at that technology and I look at the African-American community, I, you, you see opportunity, but you also worry because my daughter is now, who just interrupted, is finishing up school. And she's, as we speak, she is literally on her school camping trip and they are doing the school camping trip remotely. And they are under a tent in their room. It's at sleepaway camp. But then you have other kids where they get a data dump of work for two weeks in a public school system. Maybe their parents can help them. Maybe their parents can't help them. No computers, digital divide. And so I think that that, you know, thinking about how our communities function in a 21st century digital economy with the economic wealth concentration and the economic access concentration that is platform agnostic, right? That is what that technology allows. In a way, COVID was, you know, as someone who cares about the community, Yes, COVID has dramatically hurt our communities disproportionately, but it also has been a wake-up call that the digital divide that exists has to be addressed. Because if we have to continue with remote learning for another three, six, nine months, maybe finally we'll figure out how to get computers into every home, how to get internet access, subsidized, not subsidized, in the same way you get a food stamp, do you get a Verizon Fios like voucher like from school in the same way that you get a metro card if you can't afford it right like really how do we create opportunity so you know i i i do believe that what is happening with the combination of covid and george floyd is sad and devastating but as i saw the governor of minneapolis say when he did a tour of the the site that is now the memorial, and I think it was heartfelt, he said, I think we have one time to fix this. I think this is the only time we have to fix this. And yes, I agree, because if we don't fix this now, as we advance into a digital age, we will become Gotham. Thank you so much for making time to speak to me. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure speaking with you.